Okay, well now officially welcome to Mark. Mark's um, uh, a long-time friend and colleague. We've worked together for a long time. Uh, um, I'm, I'm a consultant, so and Mark's been on the client side, and we've worked in, uh, in, in some deep organisational change, uh, Fairfax, ABC, and uh, well, who knows what the future holds, but anyway, that's where we're at. So we, we've had a... Uh, we discovered we were Christians. Um, it, it wasn't through our faith that we first met, but through our business relationship. Now, um, and uh, and Mark, uh, thank you for coming. I know your voice is a bit tenuous, but we'll uh, we'll listen very quietly. So, just for the context, uh, the broad series we're doing is uh, the whole faith at work movement. Uh, last time I gave a opening talk with a, fr a framework for the faith at work movement. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a small but growing movement within the Christian church where people who essentially said are asking themselves the Sunday to Monday question, which is fine, Christianity has a packaged set of services, but they tend to be built, built around the rituals of Sunday. What, what does it say about life on the planet, professional life or social life or broader life um, on the Monday to Friday. And there is a movement called Faith at Work which has uh, tried to explore this and uh, Miroslav Volf, who a lot of us enjoyed when he came out, actually did his PhD in Faith at Work um, where uh, the um, Interesting thing is the way that the faith at work movement is almost a Trojan horse for a bigger question. And actually, the bigger question is what interests me, which is, what is the role of our faith in the public space? That's, that's the broad question. Um, and that question is very topical today. And um, in, in, in addressing that question, uh, we really get to an even bigger question, which is really where a lot of Ian took us, which is, What's the role of God and his work in the public space? What, what is God's destiny, uh, purposes for creation? That You actually end up there. And um, so what we've done in the way we've looked at faith at work last time is go to that higher level, the bigger question. Um, and uh, because a lot of uh, the evangelical faith that certainly I grew up with, uh, packaged faith, as a cross-based uh, redemption exercise. You know, we're here to... It's a religious, a religious uh, plan that God's got, and our job as Christians is to, to witness or evangelise or, or to be an ethical voice. It seemed... To, uh, and that's always seemed to me a very, very narrow framing of the nature of the contribution that faith could make in the public space. So we accept the importance of that, but we're kind of going up a level to say the broader question is um, how do the faithful inherit... Uh, what, what inherited mission do we have for transforming uh, life and thinking on the planet? Now, in that journey, uh, one of the people who's blessed us a lot and I think given us a lot of indirect uh, hints at this is Edwin Judge, who has really looked at that historically. Very interesting, when I was talking to Edwin um, and preparing for the interviews with him, which you can imagine is a, a jolly little ride with Edwin. I mean, he's 
magnificently eccentric, and um, as you would all know, um, who've, who've listened to his interviews, but he misheard me first that I was asking him, could he explain the evangelistic success of the church in the first 300 years? And his answer was no. We cannot explain. We cannot explain the mass conversion from 120 people to virtually, you know, whatever, like half or a third of the Roman Empire. We have no idea what happened. They told it historically, as an historian. So we could guess, and this, of course, is the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he would say the same thing. But he said we can explain its social impact, how it changed, you know, the view of society. That is studyable. And, of course, that's where he took us, which is so... This gospel certainly had an influence on redeeming souls, but it also had an influence on changing society and changing worldviews. And um, I think one of the smartest things I've ever heard about that is what Mark Strom said, which is if you'd have asked the Apostle Paul, did he have an agenda to change, the, the, you know, was he a social reformer? Um, his answer would have been, um, no, he had no agenda, but he expected it to have that effect, and he didn't know how. So... So that's a bit of a, a, an introduction. Um, what Mark, uh, what we're going to do tonight, and my, my belief is that this whole area of faith at work is like a new um, R&D area for Christian, the Christian church to think through. So as a strategist, when I look at the, what the Christian church has done, is it educationally has put all its eggs in the basket of uh, missions. You know, you go to a Bible college... It's almost a speciality. You go there if you want to become a missionary or a pastor. But what if you don't? What if, what if you've got a lot of faith that you want to be a lawyer or a teacher? Or, what curriculum would you study? And, and that's a question that I'm in, very interested in. I don't know the answer. But I, so, so I've therefore thought the people who probably could help us with this are actually what I would call the reflective practitioners, people who are actually in the marketplace, in public life, by reflecting back on our experience and stories, we could perhaps begin to get some insight into what were the kind of capabilities. Now, so, so this is uh, a chat. Mark and I are used to having these exploratory chats. We're just having it with some people listening tonight. Is that fine with you, Mark? Fine. I'm, and I'm just having to lean back, Tony, and... Uh... Except I'll let you try to explain that board behind me, which yeah, I don't know. Really <laughs> uh, so, so, so I would like to begin just a bit more, a bit generally, um, sort of a, a, a very pragmatically snapshot of your professional life. You know, like uh, you know, you yeah. Well, I mean, it was interesting just thinking about what you said then. I mean, uh, I was in my late teens and early twenties, um, what someone described as a clean-cut moral intellectual. You know. Um, conservative evangelical, went to church, uh, thought for a while about um, becoming a minister, um, decided not to do that, and then got into my professional career. I, um, I uh, dropped out of um, doing arts law at Sydney Uni and did a dip ed. I, I, a very happy day for the law community and for me. And, um, <clears throat> and I, I like referencing that story when I'm addressing law graduates when I'm doing a graduation uh, ceremony. But... Um, and so I taught for a bit, and then I, I got into, um, I became a policy advisor to Terry Metherill, who was a controversial and interesting education minister here, and then his successor, Virginia Chadwick. And, uh, and, and so I, I taught and was involved in education, studied overseas, then became a journalist and was education editor at the Herald, and, 
And really, from then, I, I spent uh, 20 years in a variety of different roles in the media. And I, through the Sydney Morning Herald and then to Fairfax more broadly, and I ended up as editorial director of uh, Fairfax, responsible for their newspapers and magazines. Um, and uh, then the ABC job opened up. and uh, Which was a bit of a surprise to you. I mean... Yes, well, it, um, it's funny. I had been um, headhunted to... Well, well, to interview and to talk with the board about running West Australian newspapers, and which is quite a big newspaper group in Perth, and I hadn't really thought of leaving Fairfax, um, and I didn't really want to interview for this. But you know, the headhunter talks you into a chat, and then he said, "Well, the board's in town next week. You know, have a chat with the board." And then all of a sudden, it was the board really liked that? Come to bring the family to Perth, and let's let's, and it was all moving very quickly. Um, and then the ABC job opened up. The head of the ABC suddenly resigned, and I thought, no, no, that's that's what that's that looks really interesting to me. And I pulled out of the West Australian job, and and just went through the process for the ABC. And and um, all I can say about me being appointed uh, as head of the ABC uh, when when I was forty three is a mediocre field. You know, I never got the paperwork, but but goodness me, uh, no one more surprised than me. Um, and yes, so so at 43, appointed to run uh, the public broadcast. That, and we'll get onto it a bit more later. But that was a, I mean, in terms of your career, that was a stretch, obviously, at 43. Yeah. To, you know. Oh, ab- absolutely. I, I, I sometimes say that uh, when I started the ABC, all I really knew about broadcasting was how to turn on the set. You know, um, I'd worked in news. I was very familiar with the news culture, but never worked in television. Never worked in radio. Um, and the ABC, you know, I, I actually think one of the reasons I'd got the job was that the ABC had been through a pretty torrid stretch. And before I got it, you know, people warned, tried to warn me off it. They said, it's a broken place, its spirit's been broken, uh, they're a defeated mob, um, you know, and it's kind of unfixable, really. And, and but, defeated yeah. in the sense they were a political football. Yes, and I must say this, that the game is still played. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> Oh, look, I, I just think there was a sense that it was, a, it was an old-style broadcaster. It had a lot of powerful enemies. The world was kind of passing it by. And that inside, the spirit was broken a bit. And it was interesting, when I arrived there and I spent a good deal of time walking around, talking with people and engaging with people, I kind of came to the realisation it was in a far better place than it knew it was and that I had thought it was. And that it was really poised... If you could do a few things well there, it was poised to really be very well positioned for all the, all the digital uh, change that was to come. And so I did two terms there, 10 years. And, and, but I really came to a view that um, once I came to it, I didn't second guess it for a minute, that, that 10 years was enough and I didn't want to do another term and it was time to go. Um, and so I told the board that and they recruited my replacement and I served out 10 years and then I was going to give myself some time off but within about two or three weeks of leaving the ABC the head of the Department of Education here resigned to take up the job in Canberra and then all of a sudden the phone rang and I had a background in education and education policy and um, and I was encouraged to apply for that and I, I reflected on it and I got very <coughs> excited about the opportunities in education and, and I I still am, I think... You know, the Australia's future is not going to rely on what we can pull out of the ground, but the people who walk the land. And at a national level, at a community level, at an individual level, you know, this is education's moment, I've decided. And so, um, yeah, I felt very excited about 
that. And so it's totally different. I mean, at my age, they recommend learning a new language and going to the education sector is absolutely right like that, you know. More, more jargon and acronyms. I have to pause every second sentence and make a note of a new phrase I'd never heard of. But great people. And I can tell you, um, I spent this week in um, Armidale and Tamworth and Moree, Wilcannia, you know, schools, 90% Aboriginal kids. Uh, you know, I, I stopped the back of a classroom as the, as the, and the Aboriginal principal told me about the upbringing of the different kids in that classroom, the things they have seen, the things they've already been through, and, and even today, um, I heard um, Jeff Masters speak. Jeff Masters is one of the world's preeminent uh, um, educational academics around testing and educational outcomes, and and he just said he, j he just said he threw it away in a half sentence. He said the single greatest predictor. The single greatest predictor of the educational outcome you will achieve on your last day of school is the educational achievement you have got on your first day of school. This, you know, which, you know, in a room full of educators, had everyone kind of reeling that 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 educational disadvantage can be so locked in for a child by the age of five that they have to spend the whole school system trying to overcome what they arrive with. I mean. You know, so I can see myself um, um, getting quite stirred up by this yeah. challenge and this opportunity, and um, and so it's going to be uh, good for me, and I think it's a good time to take on this role. Yeah, and that that uh, that ties in with one of the big themes we have uh, in gospel conversations, and that we've talked about together is that we're on the planet to be shapeshifters, to to be reformers, and. Um, I think, unfortunately, Christians have probably been a bit stigmatised as moral policemen, you know, who run ethics committees if they do engage in public life. Or, uh, whereas um, what I've heard from you just now is a sense of vision, possibility and hope. I mean, I know, for instance, in the ABC, because we did work together when you first took the job, you created a vision for a different kind of future for the ABC, a different mm. identity, and, and in a way that vision governed so much of what you did in your time there. Would you just like to tell that story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure... I, I mean, I've said in the past, you know, I'm always frightened that the imposter police will, you know, come through the door and drag you away. You know, really, you, you're making it up as you go along um, and you're just trying to work it out. And, and what I realised kind of quite early on at the ABC was that what we wanted to do was take this great grand old broadcaster that our parents had loved and our grandparents had loved and been part of our childhood on radio, television. And we, what we wanted to do was create a great public broadcaster of the digital age. And, that, that, uh, and, and pretty soon after I started there, it turned 75, and I remember just saying one day that I wanted it to be as loved and respected for my children and grandchildren's generation as it was for my parents and grandparents and that um, those of us who ran the ABC were trustees of this great institution and we wanted to strengthen it and make it enduring and important in Australian life for generations to come. There's all kind of pretty simple language that poured out, but particularly that thing about being a great public broadcaster of the digital age, well, it was very hard to contest that. There was very strong values in the place. People loved the place and they wanted what was best for it. And I found we just could drive a whole lot of change because we were... We wanted to create a great public broadcaster of the digital age. And, and there was always very this kind of interesting tension, I think, between, uh, you know, there's a line from The Leopard that I'd use a lot, which says, if we want things to remain the way they are, everything will have to change. 
So if you really loved the ABC and if you believed in it and you believed the important role that it had in the past, then you'd have to sign up to change it because just being as it was in the past was not going to take it to the future. And I found is that all that language kind of rolled out. Um, you, you, we implemented quite a lot of change and people signed up to that change because they believed in the overarching direction. They believed in the overarching um, place that we were going. I remember when I started, I, I sat down and thought, right, I had a five-year contract. What's a five-year plan? And after about 100 days in a, in a paralysed mess, um, I realised I had no... I mean, it was just impossible to uh, work out exactly because media was changing so quickly. I sometimes say when I, when I left the ABC, you look back 10 years, when I started at the ABC, no iPhone, no iPad, Facebook only in America, Twitter not invented, no rapid streaming services, nothing. And so a five-year plan from 2006 to 2011 would have missed out all of that. Ridiculous. You know, all I really had was a sense of it, it's over that mountain. The future's over that mountain. Mm -hmm. um, and there was, there was another thing that I would talk about quite a lot was um, lines from American futurologist um, John Shah, who said, the future's not a place that we're going, it's a place that we're making. And the paths to the future are made, not found. And the process of making them changes both us and our final destination. And I, I would, I'd almost close every talk. You know, by the end of it, they were almost all chanting, the future's not a place that we're going, it's a place that we're making. Because there was that sense of, no, no, um, it's in our hands, you know. We will make this. We, we're, not go, we're not going to blame anyone else. We're not going to hold anyone else responsible. Together, we will make the way to the future. And they, and they turned out to be quite rallying calls, I think. And I think people were really looking to be led. And I think the fact that I was kind of young and new and from the outside and had some confidence meant that, that even all the old guard the dear old Jesuits, as I would call them, had been there for a long time and had a sense of how it should be. They, even they thought, OK, well, this sounds OK, let's, let's go here. And, and so they, in a sense, gave me a lot of licence. I remember at the end, uh, the very end, Philip Adams said to me, look, I disagreed with a whole lot of things you did, but I thought broadly you were going in the right direction, so I thought I'd go along, you know. And I think there were a lot of people like that. Yes. Well, it's very... Let's, uh, that's, that's rich and and uh, inspiring, but now what I'd like to do is, from that sketch of your life, let's kind of go back into a bit of the diagnosis of, where, of how your faith equipped you for that, mm. um, which is uh, probably intuitive in a lot of ways. Um, and um, l let me begin by going right back to this kind of problem area we began with, because you said when... Uh, when you were young, you thought of going into, mm. into into ministry. I had the same question in my mind. And I guess when I was confronting that question, there was an implicit high road, low road, um, sacred secular split. Did you grapple with any of that? Look, I, yes, yes, I think uh, probably. Uh, I mean, it was interesting. The, um, the church they ended up going to in my late teens, early 20s, there, there wasn't a great respect, I think, for university or scholarship, you know, you just went to get out there and do the Christian ministry, you know. And so I was a bit of an outlier and some of my close friends were kind of outliers from that. The real, the real challenge came, and I was thinking about this as you said it earlier, that for me, I, I, this is not upsetting to people, but Monday through Friday was just that much more interesting than Sunday. Yes, yes. Really. Yeah. You know, it was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and when I was working for Terry Metherill in my mid-20s, I just kind of found myself there working for this kind of controversial 
reforming minister, a little bit out there, you know. Yeah, I remember Terry Bethel. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I remember the day, um, you know, he created a whole lot of education reform simultaneously and upset everyone at the same time. And I remember looking out the windows at 80,000 protesters surrounding Parliament House thinking, what have we done? Um, but when you're 26, it was pretty interesting. You know, it was really, really interesting. And I, I had this series of kind of just most unusual experiences. And, and what I can see now is that all of that um, stuff um, kind of layered life experience in me that I've been able to draw from afterwards. I, I was quite... Um, my, my father and my grandfather had both run this Australian business, this Australian management consultancy yeah. firm. And, um, Good. Yeah, and, and I was struck that um, I, hadn't ever, I hadn't found out what I was going to do yet. I hadn't found out what I was going to do. It all seemed like experience after experience. And I, I remember a university professor said, look, that, that's what it's all about now. It's... It's about getting skills and experiences that give you opportunities to give you new skills and experiences. And it's a bit like that line from Kierkegaard, that life can only be lived going forward but understood looking backwards. And so I can look back and see a rhythm and a pattern and how it was all fitted together, but it didn't feel like that at the time. Mm. But it was really interesting. And, and so once I started going down that path and having these wonderful opportunities, it never felt to me like I was going to go back and go to divinity school. But... but um, being a Christian was who I was, and even though I think I've gone through, I mean, I, I think I've gone through real wrestles of faith, you know, and I found it, that quite hard and quite tested, I think, by my life experiences, but it's still very much who I am, you know, and so I do these interviews and people say, so how has being a Christian influenced how you've done your job with the ABC? And I said, well, look, it's just kind of who I am, uh, but I think it has shaped to a degree, my world view. And I think it's shaped how I've been with people around me. And, 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 I, and we talk about those things in part, if you like. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to get into that. I mean, I'd really like to get into the world view one. Because um, mm. I, th I actually think that's, that's probably almost the major thing, which is what, uh, you know, Edward talked about with the cosmology, that we're given a world view that seeps into us. And talk more about that. Uh, yeah, well, I, I suppose... Um, I mean, I, I've worked with some of Australia's most articulate atheists uh, and um, had fervent debates at time to time, but often I've not really wanted to debate too much. I, I, suppose, I suppose the thing that I feel I've seen, and this particularly comes through my time, I think, as a journalist working in a newsroom, that, that without wanting to get into a fundamentalist theology, I think I've always felt I've seen ample evidence that we live in a fallen world that the world isn't as it should be. And the more I would look at, you know, the photographs that would come through the wire service, you'd read the reports on various parts of war zone, you'd see the extraordinary images of people suffering just in a, in a, in a news sense. And then in an interpersonal sense of the pain of so many people living their lives around, I, I think I always just felt that this is not right and that this is not the way that it should be. And, and at a very simple, almost fundamental level, that aligned with a reading of the Gospels for me. When Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, you know. And 
I, I think you, I could just always see that in the world around me. And so what, what I feel I got growing up was a layering of gospel insight and understanding and scripture that I then laid life experiences on. And, and then... And the life experiences were never enough for me to kind of let go of that Christian insight and that sense of who I was, but but to rest comfortably in that view of the world. Um, I mean, at times I think I, I've... I mean, we've talked about this. I, I think the whole Christian label kind of worried me, yep. you know. Um, yeah, say more about that. I think that's important. But but I but it's almost like but if you followed it very simply to just be are you a follower of Christ, and in Him do you see a way of transforming the pain in the world and bringing people to a place of peace? You'll, yes, I could see that, mm-hmm. and um, uh, in a sense that sense of a compassion for the world, but that also that sense of grace on your own life. I always felt that pretty strongly and yes. heavily too. Yes. You said to me earlier this week that, that you you almost had a perhaps a reputation of uh, like an advocate of hope in the journalist world. Well, yeah. I, there was a guy I worked with um, who I'm fond of and, and he'd, he'd been through terrible sadness um, in his life. Yeah, unspeakable sadness in his life. And he just said to me one day, you, you're hardwired for hope. You're hardwired for hope. You know, you just keep finding hope, you know. And I do think that, that there was a sense, I hope, around the office that, yes, I would um, find the good in things, believe in things, in a sense, believe in people, want what was for the best. And, yeah, um, search for the light through the darkness. Mm-hmm. And um, it just struck me that um, he he kind of saw that and articulated that in me, uh, that I didn't quite yeah, see, see it, in so myself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It it really, really. Uh, when I was very young, I um, had the privilege of uh, listening to one of Watchman Nee's yep. uh, disciples. You might remember. Watchman Nee, yeah. He wrote a very thick book that I never read. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and um, for those, who's heard of Watchman Nee here? About half as yeah, yeah. All those over a certain age. All those over a certain age. <laughs> if you didn't put up your hand, feel youthful now. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, really, the, the brief history of Watchman Nee was uh, uh, the leader of the house church movement in China. And, and in many ways, strategically, probably more than any other person is responsible for the fact that close to 10% of China is now Christian because by, by leading a house church movement, it went underground and, and withstood the communist revolution, despite the fact that he was in prison for the entire communist revolution. But a, uh, a remarkable man. And um, uh, whilst I wouldn't agree with all of his theology, I, I'm, uh, he's, he's enriched the kingdom of heaven more than I ever will. But... Uh, the um, I had the privilege of uh, he had about five or six key cohorts. One of whom was a man called Stephen Kong, and um, who escaped the communist revolution as a young person. We listened to him when he came to Australia, and he he, he said a few things that have stayed with me forever. Um, 
the um, now I'm trying to remember which particular one there was something I was going somewhere with this market I'll have to <laughs> recover it it so stayed with you forever so it's coming back it's, coming back. it's, it's just it's looping around it's, it's looping, looping around and loop around and come back um, the what he said was he was preaching about Moses and leadership and he talked about the burning bush experience mm. and he, he interpreted that as seeing the glory inside the mundane and he said if you've never seen the glory in the mundane and in another person you can't help them uh, and, and, and that I'd really I've never forgotten it and, yeah. and what's, that's what you're talking about you've kind of yeah, because I think, unfortunately, for a lot of the evangelical gospels, our job is to tell the world they're all sinners and fallen. But whilst that might be true, there's a more powerful job to see the burning bush, which is what you're talking about—the glory inside things. Yeah, yeah, and, and and you know, I suppose I just felt that Thoreau, isn't it? You know, people leading lives of quite des desperation. You know, just that sense of that's all around, but but still. Hardwired for hope, you, you'd, you'd you'd find a word for them, or you'd find a point of encouragement, mm. and and you'd kind of live day to day. Mm. I, I mean, I, I found I, I would finally say in those interviews when they asked, you know, what's it like being Christian at work? I'd finally say, well, you, get, you have to ask the people who work with me, mm. really, um, because because in a way um, they're the ones who really know, right, um, how it is. And I always used to think that we all have this credibility gap between the person that you want to be and the person that you really are. But the person who work, people who work with you every day, they'll know if that's a big credibility gap or not. And so I used to feel that, that if, in fact, you know, if they knew I was a Christian and that kind of made sense to them, then that's, that's where I wanted to pitch it to be. That, that the way I acted and the way I worked and not just the things I said, but how I was with them... If, if they saw a reconciliation between that and being a person of faith or being a follower of Christ, well, then that, that's where I was trying to land it, even though, of course, there are difficult conversations and difficult days and um, upset for people. That, that's just how I tried to think that through. You said something else which reminded me. I didn't expect you to say it, but I had exactly the same experience you did, which was Monday to Friday was a whole lot more interesting mm. than Sunday. Mm. Now, not that... We would probably, be, I think you and I would probably both say the same thing. I mean, the, the actual gospel message was foundational and riveting, but perhaps it was more the packaging of the Sunday social experience. But whatever the case, um, I wouldn't mind exploring that a little bit further. It, 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 I have another Watchman Knee story, by the way. Um, here it comes. Here it comes, yeah. And I can remember this one because he said he, it, it, this is that uh, he was in a pretty fundamentalist church movement so there was a sacred secular split but he was a brilliant chemical engineer mm -hmm. he's a brilliant man and uh, he actually um, he actually took time out of his full-time ministry to set up a chemical engineering company mm -hmm. and he was much criticized by the missionary people and uh, he, he kind of excused it as um, like tent making he was he was doing it to create funds for the church I spoke to a missionary who knew him and worked with him for many years, and he told me exactly what you said. He said, I actually think he was bored by the 
kind of Christian work he was in and was more interested in both chemical engineering and running a company. And, but he couldn't admit that to himself. Yeah. Uh, there's something... But I think it goes to, to gifts, doesn't it, really? Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose I've, I've thought about this quite a lot, you know. Um, I said to Tony earlier, I read a really interesting piece a little while ago, um, not a Christian piece, but it, but it was just, it was talking about the, the, the state of the world, and, 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 and one of the things it said was, um, if you have been very fortunate in life, it's very important for society that you not lose sight of the fact that you have been very fortunate in life. And one of the great problems that we see around the world, and I think, I think Donald Trump is the exemplar of it, is people who have been extraordinary fortunate in life and then they attribute it to all to their own skills and there is an um, an uncharitable meanness that then comes into play towards those other people around many of whom haven't been as fortunate as you have been um, I've been incredibly fortunate in my life mm-hmm. incredibly fortunate and it's so fortunate at times it quite disturbs me when I think it through you know uh, there's, a, there's a scene in the opening of Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern where they're tossing the coin and it just keeps coming up heads every time. I feel like that's, you know, I, I think in my own life, well, why, why was I born in Australia? Statistically speaking, uh, an outline. Then, no, I was born in Sydney, you know. Born in a good part of Sydney to parents that really valued uh, education uh, who sent me to a wonderful school where I had great teachers and I had great opportunities. And it's almost like it just kept coming up heads for me. Uh, and then, you know, um, you know, I, I, I all of a sudden, um, I got into the Sydney Morning Herald because I was visiting back Australia and all of a sudden they were looking for someone to write about education and that was the one thing I could write about and I got the job at the Herald, you know. And I was just thinking about leaving the ABC and then all of a sudden, um, leaving the Herald and all of a sudden the ABC job was open there and I get that. And then I just leave the ABC and all of a sudden the education, you know, and I just, just cannot quite work out why, mm. you know. Um, and so but, so, but partly you think, well, there's a burden and a responsibility that comes with that. And, um, and if, in fact, you have been given uh, skills and you have been given opportunities, not only do you, do you feel like you should do those things, but doing those things feels right and good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you've got a role that, that allows you to be, in a sense, your best self and use the gifts and use the skills that you have, then that feels right and that feels like a good fit. And that's what was happening to me Monday through Friday. That's, you know, and I suppose um, I felt Monday through Friday how a great minister or a great pastor would feel on Sunday. A sense of, this is me... This is what I was meant to do. This is the right fit. And I'm doing um, what I'm meant to be doing. Yeah. And there's that sense of uh, fulfilment or completeness that comes with that. Um, and, and, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot at home. I've talked about a lot with friends. There's all this debate around balance in your life and, um, you know, getting everything in order. But, but in a sense, work's always been important to me. One of the reasons work's been important is that it's been kind of very fulfilling and very rewarding, and I've thought I've been able to do good stuff there. Good stuff there. Yeah. Well, um, let's... Uh, I'd like to just summarise that, because that, that, to me, feels a lot like this area of... If we ask the question, you know, what is the role 
of the faithful in the public space and what skills and capabilities equip them to for that role. And we've, I mean, Edward would say, well, a, a worldview is a massive equipping. Uh, it'll, 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 at a subterranean level, affect you greatly. And I've heard probably two or three things from you which I think are quite profound. Number one is uh, a vision of hope. That the world has meaning. Um, it, you know, hardwired for hope. Because we, of all people, should be the advocates of hope in the world. Uh, this is the great teleological hope of the gospel. Um, and that can happen at all sorts of personal level, cosmic level, etc. So very strong. And I, and, and I think... I think, Mark, it's poignant for you to have put that in, in the journalistic context where there's so much reporting of the tragedies in the world um, where really that hope is tested. It's not an easy hope to hang on to. That was the first thing I heard. Then the second thing I heard was your sense of the... Uh, which, which was a very strong Miroslav Volf point, which is life is a gift. If I, be, if I believe in God, then I believe life is a gift and I, I diagnose my life in terms of the providence upon it. Mm. Um, and don't take that lightly. And I think, as you said, there's a responsibility for thinking this way, that uh, there's a so what for me to, to then... I think it's the great irony of this word talent, that, uh, you know, or gift, sorry, the word gift, is I'm given a gift to give to others. So I think that was the second. The yeah, third area was this very... What you said, I think, about Monday to Friday is just terribly interesting. And um, I, I love what you finished by saying it. You had the same interest in Monday to Friday that a pastor might have in the church, and 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 we shouldn't see them as either or, but part of God's God's sal salvationary work is the is the planet and various parts, including the church. So that's powerful. I'd like to now move on to this second area that Edwin talked about, which is sociology, which is all of us work inside of social institutions. Um, uh, that's what life's about. Um, you, of course, have had a particular career um, of leading some large ones, but that's, that's uh, we don't all do that, but nonetheless that gives you a space to reflect. And um, so I had some, some questions about that, which was, um, I think, uh, there is one, there's a kind of version of Christianity which Ian Proven characterised as the Christian Taliban. There would be a number of people um, who would expect that you, as the head of the ABC, would have had a strong Christian point of view yeah. on uh, censorship and all sorts of other things. And, oh, yeah. And how do you, as <laughs> head of the ABC, allow such a left-wing, godless set of journalists loose upon You've the been listening to Senate Estimates again. Haven't you? <laughs> um, the... Um... <laughs> I mean, I first encountered it really when I when I was asked to speak at, at uh, one of the events with the um, prayer breakfast in Canberra. Brave of you to do. It that. was. I didn't know that when I said yes. I only realised that. And I was uh, editing at Fairfax, and and someone said, "Look, you run horoscopes in your newspapers. You call yourself a Christian. Um, you're, you know, if, and words effectively, you're a disgrace. Um, and, 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 and I didn't, I, I didn't tell them the story, but I subsequently found out that I, I, I found out how they used to write horoscopes of the old Sydney Sun, you know, because someone said to me, one day the horoscopes hadn't arrived, and so they, you know, Pete, horoscopes, Pete, you know, typewriter, Virgo, stormy days ahead, Libra, watch out, you know. Um, they weren't taken too seriously uh, inside, but they were taken... Um, 
but they were taken seriously because the, the advice was that if, in fact, you pulled them out of the paper, particularly afternoon papers, you'd lose 20% of your circulation. And I said, look... Um, uh, and I, so I said to them at the pre-breakfast, I'm a Christian. Um, I'm editing the newspaper. We run horoscopes. I don't run horoscopes. I get fired as editor of the newspaper. A Christian doesn't run the newspaper anymore. How does that suit you? You know, that was just the reality of of the business. And I was struck that... Yeah, people bring a view to um, what you're meant to do in the role. And I found that, I'd find this a bit at the ABC too, really, uh, that, that sense that you had been appointed to impose, in a sense, your worldview or your Christian values or everything else, and whatever their interpretation of what mine should be, mm-hmm. what, what mine should be was what theirs were, I think. Um, and that's what I was expected to do, but that wasn't why I was appointed. Um, and... I, you know, I'd argue that Australia isn't a Christian country any more than the ABC is a Christian broadcaster. Mm-hmm. And so my job was to fulfil the act, as it, it admitted, and to do it that way. But yes, there were people who were quite, in a sense, harsh and judgmental around that, or disappointed in me. I just felt that they were disappointed. You know, here's the Christian guy who runs the ABC, and he's not willing to run the ABC as a good Christian should. And, and, you know, there'd be times we'd put programming to air that wasn't to my taste or sensibility or I didn't think was particularly funny or I didn't think was particularly terrific. Um, others did. Um, and in a sense, that was for them and not for me, but I wasn't to kind of frame it in terms of my own view. But, but I mean, I have... I mean, I'm... I, get, I, I, have, I have been conscious of the fact that I feel like I might disappoint Christians in a way. Mm-hmm. Um... I mean, part, and partly that's, I mean I, I mean, I don't really, I don't do too many of these events. I do, uh, or Christian events. I do something, and, and with you, Tony, I had to say yes, because I knew you'd just keep asking me and, you know, you'd wear me down eventually. Um, but but in, in part, I, I find my Christian life is a bit of a wrestle, really. You know, I have a wrestle. I have doubts. I have questions, you know. Uh, but because you're a public figure and you're standing up on the big stage at the Sydney Prayer Breakfast, it kind of implies that you're not a wrestler, What's a Doctor Who moment? <laughs> it takes me right back. Um, um, the, um, you know, because you're up there on the stage, there's kind of the suggestion that you've got the answer, that you're not a wrestler, you know, that you, you're a leader with all the solutions. And, I, I, you know, and so what I usually say is, they'd call me and say, can I do, your, can I do the men's prayer breakfast in Sylvania or something? I'd say, have you tried Mike Baird? Um, you know, have you tried Andrew Scipione? I'd give a, I'd give a list of high-profile Christians: Michael Spence, Glenn Stevens. There are a lot of Christian leaders around at the moment. So you know, you'd say, have you tried all them? And if they tried all them, then I'd say, okay, fine, I'll come and do your breakfast. But, um, but, but I, I think in a way, it's because you know, just because you have a high-profile job doesn't mean you're not a wrestler uh, on it, and also. Um, I worry about the baggage of the Christian thing. You know, I, I, the name I, and the yeah, yeah. I, I think if you're a marketing person, you'd scrap the brand. <laughs> you know, I, I think the brand has suffered bad damage uh, because I think if you ask a young person, if you, if you ask a person who, from outside a Christian experience, you ask a young person what they think of a Christian is, then they will think of narrowness and judgment and being out of touch and stale um, 
and a lot of other bad brand attributes as well, a long way from um, Jesus Christ and those early vibrant days of the gospel spreading around the world. And, you know, they think of it as anything but countercultural. Um, and, and so, in a sense, that Christian brand, I think I've struggled with that. And often so, when you're doing Christian events, it's almost like, well, what, what am I signing up to here? Because I'm not sure that that is necessarily me. Um, whereas being a follower of Christ, yes, I'm very happy to talk about that. And so I'm very happy to have these kind of conversations to, to, tonight. But, you know, I, I kind of worry about the branding and the positioning. And, and I must say, I used to have issues at the ABC on this too, because I, I think what the media often does is falls into that stereotype. I mean, I remember having some, not crosswords, but I remember having a good debate with the producers of... Uh, Q&A, when they would decide that um, they needed a Christian voice, where's Fred? Um, <laughs> roll in Fred Nile. And, and I just said to them, look, yes, most Christians I know don't see Fred as a point of identification as someone who speaks for them. But, but, but that's how sometimes it works and it thinks. And so, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with that too much. I think yeah, there's some very interesting points that you're, you're making here. I think they're very important. I mean, I think what I'm hearing is that in this organisation, what really was passionate for you was reviving hope in it, was the sense of its role in Australian society. Mm -hmm. um, probably we haven't talked about it here, but I know we talked about it previously. It was the you saw it as the mainstay of the the last almost last mainstay of the independent voice of yeah, liberalism in the country, and you wanted to preserve that. That was I mean you'd, mm. you'd, all of those I think would would authentically map onto your world view, but that meant you were going to create a forum which you would not control. There would be yeah. voices in that, yeah. and just hearing what you've said, then you, at a personal level, you would you would advocate, talk to the producers of Q and A. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about it, but you don't tell them what to do, and you're just trying to get the right voices in there. Yeah, and, and, and don't agree um, with everything that's said. Yeah, and, and on Q and A, then up pop John Dixon, you know, and others, and 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 so a sense of a broader, more inclusive uh, view. But but in a sense, I, I think in wanting the ABC to represent modern Australia, modern plurist, pluralistic Australia, if it just represented me, then I'm not modern pluralistic Australia. And yeah. in a sense, we need to have that debate. And even as Christians, we need to hear those other voices. We need to engage with those views. We need to kind of understand this world in which we Yes, live. have dialogue with it. And, and, and you may not like it, but to understand it and to be able to engage with it and respond to it strikes me as being... You know, I mean, you know, I think it strikes me as being a, a reading of the gospel where Jesus didn't flee the world, but kind of dived into it and was part of it, mm. and part of part of it was was being in those places where the religious types were distressed that he was, you know, and um, I, I sometimes think that 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 when I look at brand Christianity, it seems to be a long way away from a reading through of the gospels. I think one of the things I've been interested in over the years is that so much of church is let's look at three verses here or half a chapter here. If you read the gospel and you read a narrative flow, you just get a sense of Jesus out and about amongst and with the people. Yes. Uh, hands dirty yep. uh, in the world. Yeah, and, and not controlling every dialogue and not no. winning every argument. No. Um, so that's, that's very, very illuminating. Um, the... 
Yeah, some of the points I've got up there, I think you've, you've really covered. I, I mean, I personally find it uh, ridiculous, this assumption there is a Christian position on mm. point X, mm. um, because I know Christians disagree yeah. on point X. And um, so... Yeah, yeah, I think, that, I think that's right. I mean, and, and, and I suppose one of the things, I, I did a... Um, I did the Katoomba Christian Convention spoke up there uh, a few years ago, and I just said to them that, that I, from my perspective, Christianity in Australia now is moving back to its original position. Uh, you know, because what you'd get, the criticism would be, well, where are the Christian voices? And where's the Christian mainstream? And, and all that. And so, well, actually, no, no, I think, I think it's moving back to the Christians being the outsiders. And that it's not institutionalised, it's not at the centre, but, it, you know, if you hold a Christian worldview now, particularly if you're a young person, you are an outsider in the society and that's not where the mainstream is. And that is very different to 50 years ago or 100 yep. years ago or the founding of white settlement in Australia. It's a profound difference. But, but if, in fact, you find that disconcerting, you should be more affirmed by the fact when you go back and read the Gospel and read, read the New Testament, because that's actually how it was... And frankly, it leads to a vibrance. Mm -hmm. it leads, it's a testing, it's a challenging, and it's a vibrant. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, you would have people who, who kind of wanted you to, to use your influence to, to kind of lock a Christianity into a mainstream Christian view. But I think the world is different now. Yeah. Now, just pursuing a, a couple more questions on this, like working in an organisation, I'm interested in, the, in, a, in leadership. Um, obviously, you have been uh, a significant leader. I think you'd be happy to call yourself almost an accidental leader. Mm. Um, but I'm also interested in the fact that you have always struck me as not being terribly in, uh, personally impressed by the, by the status you have. And and so just talk to us a little bit about your views on leadership and the and the kind of how, how you keep authentic and with state status if you're running a big show. You know, do you have? Yes, yes. It's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, I, I think actually, uh, I feel like that I'm I'm possibly an accidental leader, uh, but I've always had leadership that would fall to me. Yeah. Even at quite a young age, in a group, you'd kind of end up as the leader. But I never felt like I was one of those type A driven, I must be leader. Mm -hmm. Leadership has kind of fallen uh, mm. to me. Um, and I suppose that's a giftings thing yep. that you don't necessarily see yourself. Um, the, I, I, think, um, I think I've been quite fortunate. I think leadership is quite isolating. I, I now reflect on this a lot. Um, and my wife, she runs a big school in North Sydney, and, and so she's been leading big organisations as I have, and so we've reflected on this a lot together. I think it's quite isolating. Um, I, I'm not quite sure whether we've made it more isolating than it needed to be, but you do feel that sense of being a little bit remote and needing to keep people almost slightly at arm's length for some reason, I think. Um, but I think family's been really important to me. You know, that sense of... I mean, and I think... You know, the family keeps you very grounded. They don't take you the least bit seriously. Yes, they're, they're not the least bit impressed. Um, and that's a good thing. That's a really, really good thing. 
the, the, other, the other great thing I think about the kind of leadership roles that I've had is that, you know, I mean, particularly working in show business, the entertainment industry and dealing with a lot of people who are very high profile, you see how transient and illusory uh, it is. All the things that the rest of the world would kind of kill for, you look at it up front and you realise it's kind of a thin veneer of glamour, often underpinned with massive insecurity. Or, or the other thing is that the, the tragedies and testing moments of life do not pass those people by at all. In fact, some of the most loved and wonderful people uh, who are household names everywhere, I know what's going on in their lives. Wow, you would, you know, you would not... If you wanted to be them, you wouldn't want to be them if you had to have the full package, right? And so I think, I think that kind of keeps you grounded. Yeah. Uh, grounded, too. And, and look, and I keep coming back to... Um, you know, I think I'm very fortunate to be where I am. And it comes back to that mindset that really my contribution personally to my success is a very small percentage of the factors that have all led to the success and opportunity that I've had. It's really a very small success. And so when I'm um, out at Moree East Public School looking at a five-year-old who has started school, I mean, they say one of the big indicators of success in starting a school, can you write your name, can you count to ten? And you look at a five-year-old who's probably, who's probably never seen a book before they arrived at school. And you think, if I was that kid, would have I achieved what I've achieved? Not a chance. Not a chance. And so I think all those things keep you grounded that as humbling. well. Yeah. Yes, I, I just think... And I don't think it's being humble, I just think it's being realistic. Realistic, yes. It's just being realistic. Yeah. But it is where I think if you don't have, you don't have that worldview. If in fact you believe that your success is due to the fact that you are outstanding, and that's the overwhelming thing, then I think you become terribly narcissistic, and that's why a lot of uh, leaders are very narcissistic. And I think you become very driven, and you become that type A leader because you are so frightened of losing what it is that you've got. Yeah. Um, and, and Brian and I have often talked about, you know, how would we be if it all was, went away tomorrow? We convince ourselves we'd be fine, you know, <laughs> because that's the easy thing to say. But it's a good, but it's a good test, I think, you know. It's a good test, and, and you see many leaders who really, really struggle with that. Yeah. Um, just now I'm warming up. Um, I, I think I, I, there was another book I read, Lacondi, Le, I think, um, about um, the five temptations of a CEO. And, and the first temptation of a CEO, I think, was that everybody, uh, that getting the job and having the job is the most important thing rather than what you do with the job. Yeah. And I think if you just keep focused on what it is actually you're trying to do rather than the status and the trappings yes. that go with the role, then that's, that again just keeps you kind of focused and grounded, I think. Yeah, and that's... In a, in a way, defining leadership as a service. An yes, opportunity a servant leadership, yeah. To make, to make a yeah. difference. Uh, just before we leave the uh, organisational side of things, hierarchy is... Uh, your view is on hierarchy, you know, top-down management. Do you have a view of what a healthy organisation should be? <coughs> Do you have positions on that? Y yes. Um, 
One of the good things, I think, about starting at the ABC, I remember the first executive meeting I had, and there were about a dozen around the table, and I just reflected that if I had applied for most of their jobs, I wouldn't have got them. They had really serious technical expertise or deep experience in their areas that I didn't have. But, but I was confident that I could do the job that I had been given to do, but that we would need to work together to do it. And so I think I've always tried to drive pretty hard a collegiate um, model, that sense of partnership, that sense of working together. Every time, you know, whenever I have to shut the doors of my office and beat my head systematically <laughs> against the table, um, it's always the people issues. Right? Yes, it's yes. always the people issues. And I think 90% of my job has always been to do with the people issues. Um, can't we get along? Can't we communicate well? Can't we think together? Can't we execute a plan together? They're, they're all the big things, I think, about leading an organisation. And yeah. so, um, and, and I think increasingly, matrix organisations, collaborative organisations are the way that you need to go. So it's rather than everyone's got to go, knows their job, go scatter. That's not it. It's how do we come together and how do we share and how do we work? And so I think a lot of those conversations are about being a values-led organisation, how we work together, how we engage with each other, do we respect each other? Uh, and I think that is a, a kind of a sense, a key to it, uh, rather than it just being kind of hierarchy and top yep. down. Yep. And also I think I, one of the advantages of recognising that you couldn't do those people's jobs is the sense of, well, the expertise is else, the, you know, the, the expertise is in the room, but it's not as though I have all those answers. Um, hopefully I'll just have good questions that help find those answers and I'll know good answers when I hear them, but it's out there. So let's get out there and get, get those ideas. Uh, I, uh, of course, you haven't said it explicitly, but that's quite a body metaphor, uh, you know, when Paul mm. talks about the church mm. and, and the body um, having a non... It's a system of non-hierarchical parts, every one of which is, is incredibly important yeah. but, but is unique. Yeah. Uh, quite interestingly, uh, Mark, um, I don't know if you remember the book by, I think it's Gareth Morgan called Images of Organisation. Mm. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it was written some time back and he actually looked at resident metaphors of what yeah. an organisation is and the books are very intellectual. He actually got a very, I think, good point that there is no such thing as an organisation. It's a metaphor and the metaphor is yeah. important because if yeah. your metaphor is a military metaphor, guess what? Yeah. If, it's a, if the metaphor is... Uh, Hierarchy itself is a metaphor, and he, he goes through about half a dozen or ten of them. He never mentions the body, which I always thought was... And I've never seen it in management literature, and yet mm. I've always thought it was... I thought it was obvious and common sense. So clearly it wasn't, but uh, um, um, it's there in Paul. Mm. Mm. Look, let's just... I'd like to finish by just going now to briefly to the personal journey, because, you know, life's a... Life's got an inner journey you've got to manage, um, and I guess I am interested in, in just your reflections on, you know, how your faith has uh, or nurtured your inner journey, and how important it is to manage your inner journey while you're having a public life, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think in a way. Um, I, you know, one of the reasons I find it quite hard to get up front and talk about stuff is that there's an expectation about what that will be 
And I can kind of do that in a sense. I can turn that on if I need to. Uh, but in a way, this is kind of almost like the most personal part of me. You know, this, this, is, the, this is the part of me when there is no one else around, you know. It's part of me when I'm out strolling on my own or I'm sitting in the car at the traffic lights or I'm listening to music or I'm meditating or I'm reading. This is kind of me trying to find the way to walk, in a sense. And, and I, I just think over the years it has been kind of like... It's waxed and waned, I suppose, a bit, but it's kind of been this, this anchor part of who I am and that kind of um, inseparable part of who I am and, I suppose, the person who I want to be... And, and I do find, I think, in the Gospels that sense of... Um, I, was, I was thinking last week, as I was, I was trying to come to terms with this... Um, the complexities of this new job, you know? It's big. The education department is really big. 86,000 staff, 2,300 schools. It, it's, I thought the ABC was big. This is really big. And, and so I was just trying to think, how am I going to manage this? How am I going to do... And almost that sense of... Not panic, but that sense of, will this swamp me? And how do I find a way in and engage again? And, and, how, and how do I stop it dominating my life mm-hmm. so that everyone else I encounter with just doesn't think that I'm distracted? At home, they don't think I'm distracted, or they think I'm distracted, or friends think I'm distracted, because I am distracted because it's big, you know, and I'm frightened by it. And, and so I just found myself thinking, around, I need to... to um, read the Gospels. I, I'm not quite sure I understand why this bit. I need to read the Gospels and re-engage with a servant heart. And that what I really have to do is to, where I am, give. And if I am at work, I will give what I can give there. And if I'm at home, I will give what I can give there. And if I'm with friends, I will give what I can give there. And that's what that's the only clue I've got about how I'm going to manage mm-hmm. this. And so I'll read the Gospels to try and get fed and get insight around just being, in a sense, a giving servant leader as best I can, mm-hmm. recognising this job is too big for me and I'll be quite overwhelmed by it, but if I do that, then that will kind of get me going in the right way. You know, what you've implied is something, and I know this about you, and, and uh, you're, you're frank, you're candid... Um, you don't feel the need to publicly pretend you're in control of everything. Um, you, you're, you're happy to say... Um, I'm not a good enough actor to pull that off. I'm not a good enough <laughs> to pull that off. But, uh, which I think is... Um, um, I think it's actually... I actually think it's a, there's, a, there's a sign of you've got... Uh, how could I put it? There's faith in that. There's kind of faith that We'll work this through. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah I think that I think that's right. You know. I, you know. I, I just think there's that the the metaphor. I mean, it's a cliched metaphor, but I, I've really been struck by that sense of just being on the journey. Uh, one, one of the best things I did, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I suppose, was read the Odyssey, mm-hmm. uh, which I encourage people to do. It's just it's just wonderful, you know. And I've gone back and read it a few times since. And what the Odyssey is all about, the journey. Odysseus's journey home to Ithaca, where Penelope is waiting for him. Because he's fought in the wars and he just wants to go home. But the journey takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of distractions and lots of different paths on the way to get home. And 
the, the message of it, and there's a great poem by Cavafy called Ithaca, which summarises all that, that it's that realisation that the journey is the thing. Mm. Mm. That it's not about that point, you know, and it, it's, like I said earlier, the future's not a place we're going, it's a place that we're making. The journey is the thing, you know. Mm. So um, it is how you walk each day. And that confidence that is you just keep going along there's no guarantee everything's going to work out. There's no guarantee of a happy ending. There's a lot of uncertain things. And, you know, we've, we've, we've all had circumstances in our life. We've had tragedy. We've had people sick. You know, I feel there are no guarantees about how anything kind of works out. But you just got to keep walking, I find. And, and I think that... And so that's why even the metaphor of the Christian walk, that's how, you know, it's just kind of out there walking. I actually... I even find I, I kind of almost most spiritually engage when I'm out there walking, you know, and just that sense of um, grace and it's kind of it's going to be it'll be all right. Just keep just keep plugging along, mm. you know, and hopefully over the years you get wiser and get more insight, and and that helps you as you wrestle with things as they emerge. Mm. The um the final thing I'd, I'd say uh, is, um, and you don't have to answer this if nothing comes to mind, but I, I often speculate, people like you, and I've had a similar journey, that it's not exactly lonely, but there isn't really a structure. I mean, the church doesn't seem structured around helping you in this journey. It's, mm. it's, it's, you do it yourself. Um, any thoughts as to how, as the, uh, you know, the, the, the dream kind of Christian support mechanism uh, that, could, uh, that could have made that journey more uh, supported deliberately, um, either via churches or via Christian teaching? Anything occur to you, or is it as good no, as it gets? I, No, but I, I suppose you say it's, it's, a, it's a good question, I reckon. Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I think it is lonely uh, sometimes. I mean, I think, you know, we, we're a tight family and then we have some tight friends. Uh, but that's almost all we've been able to sustain as we've both done these really big jobs. <laughs> and, and both um, with, you know, I shouldn't speak for Bryony, but, but running a school is nothing more people-intensive. The kind of role I have, really people-intensive, I think you then kind of retreat. <laughs> Um, I think part of the challenge, though, is that, that you'll go through times when you um, need people, but they may not be there because you've gone yeah. with a really small core. And that's hard, I think. But in a way, you, that, that you're reaping what you've sown yourself. And, and so I, I don't think of it... I think Bryony and I, in reflecting on it, have not thought as much as what should have everyone else done, but are there things that we should have done differently? over the years, and I think we reflect on that. Mm. Um, we reflect on that a bit. And, um, I, you know, I just think you, you learn as you go about it. But I think that's one of the reflections I've had mm. uh, in more recent times. Yeah. Well, th that has been wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, I think it's what I wanted, which was let's explore it. Um, and thank you so much for your candour and openness. Good. Thanks, Tony.
Well, don't tell me the take didn't work. Well, no, it, it has happened. Um, but uh, it's a good question to ask. I've had terrible <laughs> moments. I'm really sorry. <laughs>